0: Hello and welcome to the Better Human Podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights and this podcast is all about human rights. Today I'm bringing back the guests who joined me for the first episode where I spoke about coronavirus and the human rights response. They are Judith Bueno de Mesquita who's a lecturer and co-deputy director of the Human Rights Centre at the School of Law at Essex University, Aoife Nolan who's a professor of international human rights law at the University of Nottingham, Keelan Gallagher queen's council who is a barrister at doughty street chambers and nicola higgins who is also a barrister at doughty street chambers where i am too the better human podcast is kindly supported by goldsmith's law and their pioneering new llb law and undergraduate course taught in london they are currently advertising for three lectureships and one of which is in human rights so if you want more information then go to gold.ac.uk forward slash law if you want to help keep this podcast going as we try and piece together the human rights implications of this enormous global crisis we're experiencing at the moment, then please consider supporting it through patreon.com forward slash betterhuman or betterhumanpodcast.com. Thank you so much to everybody for coming back we've we've got the we've just about got the band back together we're still waiting for nicola to sign in but um given the um potential technical challenges of having us all together I, we're, we're going to get started and, and hopefully nicola will jump in when she when she comes in um but we we've got here we've got um judith Efa, and keelan and and myself So it's been a month since we last spoke. I just wanted to ask everybody where they are speaking from at the moment and how they're feeling.
1: Thanks, Adam. I'm speaking from home in London and I work at Essex University, but I live in London and I'm shut up in my little office and I have three children who are supposedly homeschooling, but I can tell you that one of them is on social media, one of them is watching Harry Potter and the other one is... Doing his homework now after we had a lot of difficulty um, not being able to access it this morning, which I think was due to my technical incompetence. Um, In terms of how I'm feeling, um, well, I think um, on the one hand, I feel very tired um, and overwhelmed by the crisis. On the other hand, um, I feel Quite fortunate um, that I'm a fortunate person and that I've got a, a place where I um, am able to isolate myself, unless I have a that I have a continued employment. But also, as well as my own personal situation, I think um, for me there's also an overwhelming anxiety about us being only at the start of this crisis and being uh, really unsure, um, as everybody is, in terms of how long it goes on for and what the long term implications are going to be um, Aoife. so
2: I'd echo uh, a lot of what Jude has just said including recording this from home but I suppose my overwhelming feeling at the moment which I think a lot of people working on the human rights element of COVID-19 have as well is a feeling of being very much time poor in a time when we are all allegedly uh, time rich
0: Keelan, uh, wh- 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 where where are you yeah. and how are you feeling? Yeah, I mean, I know it sounds like you're in a place where you've got better internet than five minutes ago.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I suppose, Adam, I agree with you on it being hard to believe. It's been only a month. Um, at the time when we last recorded, a number of us were sharing a room, appropriately socially distanced. Schools were open and it feels like a very different world in many ways to where we now are four weeks later. But I'm also speaking from home, similar to Judith and Aoife, um I am waiting to have my three children burst into the room at any moment. Judith's um, summary sounds very similar to mine. Um, but every time I'm finding it difficult with homeschooling and uh, finding it frustrating, uh, I realise how lonely others must be who are self-isolating or in quarantine, who don't have any human contact or human touch. So uh, I keep trying to remind myself how lucky I am to have some green space, and to have human contact. Overwhelmingly, I think this is just a very discombobulating time for everyone in different ways. And since we last met, um, I and many others have seen the coronavirus crisis touch loved ones, neighbours, friends in different ways. Uh, And I think that's why it's very important to take stock today, Adam, in the way that you are, four weeks on, when we're seeing this crisis unfold.
0: Oh, well, thanks so much, everybody. Um, and I mean, just to just to complete the picture, I'm also at my home in London while my wife Julia is very, very kindly um, looking after our children um, and trying to do a bit of um, ho- homeschooling. Although, you know, I, I think in the in the very loosest definition, at the moment, it's the best we can we can manage. Um, the way we're going to talk through the issues, because there's so many, is well, we started at the most personal level, and we're going to zoom out very, very widely to the global impact of the crisis, and then we're going to slowly move back down towards the local um, as the conversation goes on, and to the, the to the more domestic issues. And the first question I'm going to ask you is about global impact. Um, and coronavirus is a truly gr- global crisis because the urgency of the healthcare response and the lockdowns. Um, and, and, and because of that, most states and individuals are focusing very much on, on what's happening locally. Um, it's very difficult to, to see beyond that because of the, the drama and the threat of people dying around us. And that's fair enough. Uh, but human rights are about international solidarity. What can we learn, if anything, from, by, from zooming out and uh, not in? And how can human rights laws, treaties and principles help us navigate this crisis? Um, And I'm going to start with Aoife.
2: So I think uh, we discussed quite a bit of this in our previous conversation a month ago. But I think what's maybe interesting in terms of the month that has passed since then is the fact that we're getting an an ever clearer sense of how human rights uh, standards, duties um, and principles should be shaping and in some instances, uh, indeed, are shaping state responses to the pandemic. Uh, In the last month, we have seen uh, the bodies associated with a number of UN treaties, for instance, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights and the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. We have seen the bodies that are responsible for monitoring those treaties and issuing statements talking about the implications of COVID-19 for a range of rights under those treaties and providing general guidelines uh, very broadly, very broadly put uh, for states who are designing their responses and indeed changing their responses almost on a day-to-day basis at the moment. We're also seeing that in addition to uh, the very strong human rights protections with regards to health right to life, right to privacy, right to bodily integrity, et cetera, that we see at the regional level, for instance, we also see there, we see statements from the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, from the Inter-American Court and the Inter-American Commission on, on Human Rights, again, focusing, digging down into what the specific implications for the COVID-19 and states' responses to them, what what their treaties have to say, what the implications of those treaties are when it comes to what is acceptable and unacceptable in terms of state responses to COVID-19. And we're at the stage now where we can actually, um, and if this is helpful, I'd be happy to talk about it a little bit, we can really get a sense of some of the key key shared common elements of those statements. And I think it's useful to look at them because they give us a sense of... The fact that, yes, COVID-19 is having, different, having a different impact at the local, at the national level. States are doing different things. But there are common areas of global concern from a human rights perspective. So if we look at, for instance, the statements of these UN bodies and these regional human rights bodies, we see, for instance, a huge focus on the part of all of them on, for instance, the rights to life and health, but we're also very importantly seeing a message from all of the relevant bodies about the connection between COVID-19 and a very wide range of human rights. So whether civil, social, economic, political, cultural, Okay, so it's not just about the right to health, it's not just about the right to life, it's about the right to information, to privacy, to food, physical security, safe and healthy work conditions, liberty assembly, freedom of religion, social security. And I go on and I go on. But really what we're seeing very strongly from these bodies, and indeed, which is and indeed from international human rights law more generally, is the fact that we're seeing this interdependent, interrelated human rights, you know, spectrum. All all aspects of the spectrum practically are being affected by COVID-19 and states' responses. The other thing that we're seeing, uh, you know, building on that, that we're seeing these UN and regional human rights bodies looking at are, while there's obviously recognition on the part of those bodies of the need for urgent public health measures, those bodies are very concerned about trying to provide guidance to states as to what are the limitations on the rights? Sorry, excuse me. On what are the limitations or the parameters, on, in terms of what states can can do, in the context of in the context of covid in the context of covid nineteen? So, for instance, what actions can states take that are acceptable in the context of human rights? What actions are unacceptable? And we see different, you know, different, differing levels of details in the different bodies. The third thing we see that, again, I think shows very much a global human rights concern is the focus of all these different bodies on the on particular vulnerable groups within society. And obviously, going back to the local, different, different, you know, different societies will have different vulnerable groups. Right. But all of these bodies certainly emphasize the, the impact of COVID-19 and state responses to it on older people. People with disabilities and health conditions, uh, poor people, homeless people, children, etc. Right. So there's a very clear message coming out from international human rights bodies, which is of course reflective of international human rights standards themselves, that there has to be special attention paid to the impact of COVID-19 and state responses to COVID-19 on vulnerable groups, and in particular, which is crucial, that there is no discrimination. Right. That where states where states responding to COVID-19, they are not their behavior isn't discriminating directly or indirectly against groups, for instance, and, we're, and I know that we'll talk about this later, for instance, groups such as prisoners, people with irregular migration status, et cetera. Um, and I think the final thing I think that's very interesting that I just flag that's emerging from this is that there's a recognition that international human rights law has a huge amount to say, not just about state responses to COVID-19, but also to the responses of business, of employers, Or, for instance, the responses of international financial institutions such as the IMF and the World Bank. And just as we know know that uh, the range of actors whose actions and inaction have implications for human rights enjoyment are very broad, this is also true in the context of COVID-19, where we see employers, businesses, international financial institutions you know, let's take the example of economic sanctions, all having potentially very important role to play with regards to both supporting human rights enjoyment during the time of COVID-19, but also worryingly potentially undermining human rights enjoyment in the time of COVID-19.
0: Thanks, Aoife. Jude, do do you want to talk a bit about the international aspect of this crisis in in respect to the global south? Because that's not something that... Is, is forming a very strong part of our national conversation um certainly not in the in 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 the sort of newspaper commentary
1: absolutely and um, i think there's three main elements to it one of which really is what Aoife has has just highlighted a, a second aspect really which is really developing a bit some of what what Aoife has said is really the huge threat um not only to people who are vulnerable in terms of their status but also to people who are vulnerable because of impoverishment and oxfam um, has um, estimated that the crisis could put push half a billion people into poverty with women being at particular risk due to their work um, in the informal in- economy in particular um, and that has huge human rights implications for, for people's very basic rights to healthcare rights to education, um, adequate food um, and, and housing, amongst others, and, and water and sanitation. And, you know, Oxfam has spoken about a number of different recommendations. Um, and they include, uh, you know, Drawing what deeper has just said things like uh, debt cancellation, greater support from international financial institutions, greater aid, um, and um, also issues to do with um Global um, distributions of wealth. So, there sh- should there be um, a greater taxation on um, on, on income, um, for example. Um, and the UN, interestingly, has called, still staying at the international level, the UN has called for um, three billion pounds uh, to support efforts um, in low-income countries. But so far, there's only been four hundred million that have, has been pledged. So, the international community is um, not really managing to um, um, raise raise the, the funds that are, that are desperately needed to uh, support lower income countries to respond to the crisis, and this all raises huge um, has huge implications in terms of human rights, because not only do states have uh, human rights within their own jurisdictions, but they also have under universal declaration on human rights and a number of the treaties which the uk and other countries have signed up to they have obligations of international cooperation and assistance Um, just in terms of um, some of the other issues in in the global south um uh, you know as with many human rights um practitioners i i do work on global global issues but more recently, I've been focusing uh, more on on the UK in terms of COVID nineteen. But a, a, a few of the issues to flag uh, in in, in low income countries include some of the real difficulties that that may arise in terms of uh, social distancing, which may have, as they do in this country, they have a, an economic impact. But the impact is potentially going to be greater in countries which are lower income countries. Another key issue is people's access to healthcare, where health systems are weak, where people lack access to healthcare, um, there's going to be there's potentially a very significant problem in terms of people managing to seek treatment. Um, and there's been calls for uh, a much more um, community, comprehensive community centred response, uh, including testing and isolation in places which have this limited um, hospital capacity for lower income countries. And, you know, we're already seeing some of the problems of health systems being overwhelmed. And one of the countries which has been in the news recently about this has been Ecuador, where the um, country's um, hospitals have been overwhelmed. And there's been um, quite distressing reports from uh, Guayaquil about um, about bodies being left in the street and so on and so forth. Um, other problems include, um, of course, issues to do with malnutrition and other Uh, HIV, other chronic illnesses which um, are in higher, um, which are more prominent, prevalent in low income countries, many low income countries anyway, than high income countries um, and which um, themselves cause particular problems in the context of COVID-19.
0: Keelan, do you want to say something on the international side?
3: Yeah, so I suppose um, on the international aspect, I think from a civil and political rights perspective, there's really four different categories of development which I think we need to be very wary of. Uh, The first is emergency powers being introduced which threaten democracy and fundamental rights. So not a surprise to see coronavirus as the basis for an opportunistic power grab. Um, And there's many examples of that in different guises. So in Hungary, for example, we see a very alarming Um, example of a a government using this crisis to introduce emergency powers without a sunset clause. Um, But then there are differing examples, like in Poland, for example, they've taken a very different approach. The governing party has not declared a state of emergency, and its opportunistic approach is to say, well, we should proceed with an election next month. And uh, commentators rightly think the real purpose of that is essentially to favour the governing party uh, who's got full access to state TV and who will benefit from a postal election. So that's the first thing, the kind of opportunistic power grab um, and coronavirus being used as an excuse um, by governing parties. The second, which is closely linked to that, um, Adam, is coronavirus being used as a fig leaf to crack down on dissent often targeting journalists and human rights defenders. And that's something we talked about a little the last time when we met a month ago. And we've seen in the four weeks since uh, the spread of fake news laws targeting journalists and whistleblowers and a rounding up of critics, particularly critics who are um, speaking out about how states are dealing with coronavirus. So it's almost like um, a reputation management on a global stage um, by countries such as Egypt, China, and so on. Uh, The third is um, coronavirus is unfortunately being used as a time to restrict women's access to abortion. And there's many examples of that. So uh, across the world, we're seeing reproductive rights being undermined by coronavirus. Um, And that is sometimes just for practical reasons, because once you have travel bans and you combine that with states which don't have ready access um, to reproductive system, reproductive rights, domestically so countries like malta some states in the us if you don't proactively put something in place women will uh, be prevented from accessing abortion and then there's other more extreme examples where people are using this uh, as a reason to bring in restrictive laws such as poland and then the fourth one which i wanted to touch on is um there's a real crisis in a whole range of countries um with existing prison populations so in many countries where prisons are already a petri dish for disease spread at any time, uh, what we are now seeing is a fundamental public health crisis. Um, Aoife mentioned earlier many of the statements that have been made by international bodies. There's been a very series of very powerful statements by the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights um, urging states to release uh, people detained without sufficient legal basis um, in these circumstances, because otherwise, uh, what we're going to see is uh, a very large number of deaths.
4: Um, so, I think that I have been most interested to see how different countries across the globe have responded to the coronavirus epidemic. And I have been um, obviously very touched and very moved by the responses of healthcare workers around the globe their commitment to their job their selfless acts in order to protect and look after the safety for others but obviously like everyone else I'm concerned about the, the future going forward and, and most particularly given my area of practice is the use of criminal justice in order to respond to the, to the epidemic and how that might feed itself into the legislative and policy framework going forward I want to, we're no longer in in an emergency, how it might embed itself into the criminal justice system here um, more permanently, and and also, of course, I'm dismayed to see coronavirus being used as a as a fig leaf in other countries um, to deal with political objectives.
1: So, I'd like to just raise, uh, building on Efa's remarks, I'd just like to raise a few additional points. Um, and firstly, it is that a uh, point about international cooperation. Um, And international cooperation is an obligation which is seen under international treaties like the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights and the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And it requires states not only to give effect to economic and social rights within their own jurisdictions, but also to engage in cooperation elsewhere. Um, and this is, of course, particularly important at a time of of global global health um, and economic crisis, such as COVID nineteen. Um, and reflecting this, uh, the UN has, has put out a funding call for three billion dollars, um, and that was um, to support their work um, in particularly in low income countries um a number of which are very uh, dependent um, on aid um, and for reasons of poverty um social insecurity uh, conflict weak health systems and so on and so forth and um covid nineteen is uh, set to have a um, tremendous and is already having and is set to have a tremendous impact um, on 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 these countries um, and oxfam for example has estimated that uh, COVID-19 could push half a billion people worldwide into poverty um, and that's likely to particularly um, be a, a, a problem for, for women. Women are at greater risk um, and it's very worrying to me that uh, out of that three billion only 400 million dollars have, have actually been pledged. Uh, funding WHO, that's another key key issue and uh, we've seen reports of how WHO um, operates on quite limited budgets, so bolstering support for the WHO is is really critical. Uh, In terms of the the situation, some of the issues facing um, lower-income countries in particular, well, even in high-income countries, we've seen the strain which an outbreak of COVID-19 can place on on health systems. Um, In many low-income countries, health systems are are weaker, they're less well-funded, they're less well developed. Um, so that's obviously a critical um, concern if, if as and where COVID-19 outbreaks occur. Um, already in Ecuador we've seen um uh, it's just one example of a country where the health system has been overwhelmed um, with a high number of deaths um, occurring um, and the health system struggling to cope. Um, so, also, there's there's a range of different impacts. There's the health impact. There's also a huge economic impact. There's a lot more economic insecurity in many in many contexts, um, and the um, policies of social isolation, both within countries and, and globally, has a huge economic impact, um, which, which um, is which is really threatening for people's um, well-being, for their livelihoods, for. Um, their nutrition, their ab- ability to access healthcare in the first place, um, and um, there's also difficulties in terms of so whether there's this lack of healthcare, people have been talking about the importance of a sort of comprehensive community-based response uh, with testing and isolation, um, and also um, policies of social distancing. But social distancing, um, in and of itself, as well as the community approaches are also sometimes difficult. People are living in um, in areas. People are li- living in overcrowded conditions, um, in areas where there's uh, poor access to um, water and sanitation. So it's a really complicated um, picture, but it really um, underscores the need for um, proactive action and for responses to be tailored to local context and above all for support to be given uh, to these two places um, which uh, are uh, very much suffering in the context of outbreaks.
0: The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just three dollars a month that's just over £2, via our Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. So I want to talk about the right to health. Um, And obviously coronavirus has been the, the uh, at the moment the the big the most demanding stress test you can almost you can possibly imagine on the health on healthcare systems um uh, or or put it another way a pandemic a bad pandemic like we're experiencing is going to stress any healthcare system um but but it's also stressing international health cooperation um through organizers organizations like the world health organization which Now, famously, um, Donald Trump has decided is is going to be one of his scapegoats, um, and 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 has decided to defund the World Health Organization from the United States perspective. Are we learning? Um, Are we learning things about our local healthcare systems? Are we learning things about our international health systems? And and if so, what?
1: Okay, I'll start with a few remarks about the the WHO in terms of what the WHO. Does the world's global health agency so its um, responsibilities lie in several different areas? And so, so, one of that, and perhaps what we're most familiar with at the current time, is its role in terms of investigating, um, providing data and recommendations for emerging disease threats such as coronavirus or slightly longer ago, Ebola and SARS, Um, but they also focus on eradicating existing diseases and help supporting countries to address them. So they've played played a really important role since the foundation in 1948 in terms of um, diseases such as smallpox, polio, malaria, HIV, AIDS, Ebola, just to to name a few. Um, And then they also um, played a really important role in promoting global public health. So in terms of the global response to coronavirus, you know, WHO is a technical agency and it works very much in partnership with governments and um, that was why uh, at early stages of the pandemic it was working with um, the government of China to try and work out what was going on and to Address the issue in a global perspective, and and you know the problem is when a, when governments, particularly the United States, which is the largest donor towards um, the WHO, when it removes its funds, it firstly threatens the work that the agency can do in terms of coordinating, helping to coordinate a global response. Secondly, it has um, a hard impact in other areas of its work. Um, so. The WHO regional director for Africa, for example, has highlighted the risks that this poses to completely different areas of work, including polio and communicable diseases like AIDS and and tuberculosis. So, you know, really at this time, um, the international community needs to be working to strengthen and better fund the WHO. It doesn't have a very big budget, actually, rather than undermining um, what it can do. Uh, In terms of um, national health systems, well, just to speak to the UK, um, if you look at obligations under international treaties like the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, also the International Health Regulations, um, the UK has obligations to prevent epidemics and prevent and and ensure treatment for epidemics. Um, And, you know, coronavirus is is a case in point, and this demands long-term and short-term determined action. Um so for me it's it is of some concern that um even though there has been a long history of discussing an, an epidemic uh, in recent years, not just in recent weeks but in recent years w- what seems to be coming out is that um this has not been given um the attention that that is needed was needed um, and obviously in recent weeks um this, in recent months has been a, an awful lot of questions about um preparation process um which has been led by the government um and um i'm very concerned also uh, about the fact that the the government hasn't followed the the advice at all times of the who including on issues to do with testing and contact tracing which um, is something which is now now happening but i'm concerned that it wasn't happening um a number of a number of weeks or a couple of months ago
0: jude can i can i can i just jump in about the world health organization because yeah. w- one of the things that i mean, i i don't have to admit i didn't know very much about the world health organization not not i don't come from a health and human rights perspective obviously i know yeah. about it but because of of, of this crisis I, i've started looking a bit into its history um, and and I hadn't quite appreciated how intertwined the WHO is with the Universal Declaration and the, of Human Rights. And, and I just want to read a couple of... I mean, the, the Constitution, which was, the, I think, the 6th of April, um, 1948, so just six months before the Universal Declaration, just reading a couple of bits from the Constitution. Um, health, is a, health is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Um, the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of health is one of the fundamental rights of every human being without distinction of race, religion, political belief, economic, or social condition. An unequal development in different countries is the promote in the promotion of health and control of disease, especially communicable disease, is a common danger. I just find that really interesting that that it's a, it's, it's very much a human rights focused organization and it's also focused very much on communicable disease and the realization that, which must have been very clear in 1948, only you know 25 years after the Spanish flu, that different parts of the world experience communicable d- disease differently because of their social um, structures, and it just seems—I mean, it's such—it it kind of explains to an extent what what Donald Trump's problem with it is, because it seems anathema to to his perspective. Um, but it, I just found it very interesting how what a human rights approach the World Health Organization is about.
1: Absolutely. Um, and also what's interesting given that is that for many years, the WHO was quite criticised for um, really being behind uh, the work of other UN agencies in terms of, of human rights. Um, so there was quite a lot of resistance um, within the organisation for a number of years to adopting a sort of human rights-based approach while other agencies like UNICEF and United Nations Population Fund and UNDP really ran with its agenda. But um, it has become much more part of the fabric of the organisation in the last, probably in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, And um, certainly the messaging of Dr Tedros, the um, WHO um, director, has been very much Framed in terms of human rights in in the response to um, to coronavirus, and much of the technical guidance which is put out by WHO now has human rights That's throughout
0: it. Efor Keelan, do you want to come in on that?
2: To go back to the right to health, I think that it's worth noting that the right to health is protected in as we as we've already talked about under international human rights law, various UN treaties. Uh, Both aspects of the right to health are protected both directly uh, in terms of, say, the right to the highest attainable standard of health under the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, and also aspects of the right to health are protected indirectly through the employment of, say, the right to life and other civil and political rights under, for instance, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. And I think one of the things that is interesting from a UK perspective, well, actually, moving backwards, one thing to note is that all of the regional human rights systems, again, whether inter-American, African, European, also have right to health, uh, right to health related protections. But when it comes to the UK and other European countries uh, work around COVID-19 and the right to health, a key instrument that needs to be taken into account uh, is the European Social Charter. Uh, Which many of these, uh, which 43 uh, Council of Europe countries have volunteered to be bound by, and 34 of those are bound by the revised 1996 version. I flag that because the body, um, the body that monitors uh, the right to protection from health and state efforts to give effect to that right under the European Social Charter, uh, and that body is called the European Committee of Social Rights, will be looking at those states' performance with regards uh, to COVID-19 in 2021.
3: So on the right health issues, I very much agree with what Jude and Aoife have said. And I think there's just three very short points that I um, would flag from my perspective. The first is the framework that EF has been speaking about it's so important to remember that we uh, the right to health includes this proactive positive obligation on states and one of the things that this crisis has laid there is many, many years of underfunding and deprioritization of pandemic planning and look we we all see this in our professional life and our personal lives where the urgent overtakes the long-term important. It's very easy to put something like pandemic planning on the back burner when you're dealing with issues which seem more immediately uh, important. So, uh, And we
0: can see now that that's precisely what's been happening
3: um, in, in many countries, and indeed it's happened to WHO budgets over the years. So that's the first uh, point. It shows the importance of that proactive, long-term, positive uh, obligation. And um, second point is, just specifically in relation to the UK, um, one of the things which has been very concerning to me over the last number of weeks was that um, non-apology apology by Priti Patel in relation to PPE, if I could put it that way, um, you know, when she said, I'm sorry if people feel that there have been failings, which is classic language to avoid taking responsibility for there having been failings in relation to PPE. Yes, so, and,
0: so, and, and just to, just, say, just to, just to it, pop in, that, that, it, that's personal protective equipment for healthcare workers. Um, yes, that's right. Yeah.
3: And, and then she went on to say, "But we're in an unprecedented global health pandemic. So that the demand and the pressures on PPE and demand for PPE are going to be exponential. And it does seem to me very important that we actually look at the fact that this did not come entirely out of the blue. First of all, in the very short term, there were weeks when uh, the UK government had time to prepare and knew what was coming and was receiving advice indicating what was coming. And but also." Looking at that much more long-term picture, why is it uh, that over a period of many years, it's been clear that there were shortcomings in the UK's PPE supply and pandemic planning? And why has it taken a crisis like this for those issues to come to the fore? And then the third point, just to flag on uh, right to health, and we don't have time to go into it in detail today, but just to note it, is um, I have noticed that much of the discussion about health has tended to focus on um, coronavirus and physical health. And one of the real issues we need to have in mind is mental health um, at a time when mental health services have been um, starved of funds for a long period of time. And you now have a situation where a great many people are self-isolating or in quarantine and don't have their usual social contacts with work colleagues or with neighbours, which they would otherwise have. And these are very dangerous circumstances for people's mental health too, and we must not forget that.
0: Do you, do you, can I, can I, can, sorry, can, I, can I just follow up with Keelan for a second? Um, Ke- Keelan, do you, do you just just br- shooting the breeze here? Do you think that Pretty Patel may have been uh, had half an eye on potential legal claims by um, the families of healthcare workers that have died from contracting um, coronavirus if they didn't have appropriate PPE? Um, because, I I, I mean, I, of all the le- potential legal claims, it seems to me those are the most you know, straightforwardly um, provable. And if the government starts apologising um, for for lack of PPE, that might, may be seen as an admission of culpability.
3: I have been wondering that as well, Adam, because that kind of language, the non-apology, apology language, you know, the equivalent of I'm sorry if you felt offended, you know, um, uh, it's that kind of language is it, something that we often see, for example, in relation to inquests and civil claims. And um, so it's language which we often see, or in many of the um, you know major inquiries over the last number of years, like the uh, Hillsborough families, the so, 77. You see similar language. So the language of wanting to be able to get a headline saying that you've said sorry, uh, but trying to avoid accepting any responsibility. So it did look like language that had been legal to within an inch of its life, it seemed to me. So I think that's a fair question, Adam. And I've got the
0: same suspicion as you. Yeah. Um okay, sorry, I, I interrupted you, Jude. Did you want to pop in?
1: Yeah, I've got I've got two other things to add. And one of them very much takes up um what Keelan was saying about mental health. Um and you know, there are these these huge sort of side effects on on health in different all sorts of different ways. And so one of the things which I think is really shocking um is that um there was a report a few days ago um, how there was, I think, um, an extra six thousand deaths and expected across the UK and the week ending the third of April, um, and I think um a little over three thousand of that was attributed to um, known cases of COVID nineteen, but the others, some of them, may be COVID nineteen related, but because they didn't take case, place in healthcare settings, it's not yet clear. But there's also an um, idea that this, this is also a rise in terms of um, deaths from other conditions. Um, suicide has been one issue which has been mentioned, but also people who haven't been seeking uh, treatment um, when they've needed it for conditions such as stroke um, or, or, or heart attacks. People are f- afraid to access healthcare. Uh, the final thing to say about the right to health is, of course, it's not just a right to health care, but it's also a right to social determinants of health. And social determinants are the conditions in which people are born, grow, um, live, work and age. And these are um, determinants which are shaped by all sorts of different factors, including how money, power and resources are distributed. And, you know, what we're seeing in terms of COVID-19 in terms in terms of the patterns of mortality is that those social determinants uh, appear to be having quite a big effect on who is affected and who um, is surviving. And that plays out in terms of issues to do, it um, plays out in terms of um, criteria such as eth- ethnicity, um, also issues to do with um, age um, and and other, and other comorbidities. So it's not just about um, being able to access care and the care system. It's also about um, the COVID-19 is very much exposing these huge sort of inequalities in terms of people's um, own uh, health security, if, if you like, because of all these different factors.
0: There's been, there's been some reporting of a, um, of a disproportionate number of deaths coming from the black and ethnic minority community I've not looked into this in huge detail, but certainly in the UK and in New York, that that's being reported as quite a strong, disproportionate effect, and there's a number of theories about why that is. But one of them is that the black and ethnic minority community they might be in living conditions which are expose them more because of, for socioeconomic reasons to a lack of healthcare or or, or a lack of the ability to socially isolate. They might be in more uh, lower-paying healthcare worker jobs where they're going to be on the front line of the COVID-19 response. And that really is, you know, it's very upsetting and concerning.
2: Regardless of what the reasons end up being for the apparent disproportionate number of BAME people dying from COVID nineteen
4: the coronavirus the human right to uh, and both human the coronavirus acts, And also the health that there is an no obligation on to investigate
2: situations and in
4: how they slot you that, you that into pandemic the
2: new or a particular illness having a disproportionate impact on a particular group. and that is certainly as something as that to needs to be borne in mind when we look at the, the situation in the UK and the very real concerns raised in this area by the struck Neil, did you want to say something?
4: One does not. Briefly, have to um, on the uh, point that was made about um, the
3: disproportionate impact or, on or Black, or Asian, or minority and minority
4: ethnic communities. And that's a feature which we're
3: seeing in a range and, of and places. I, and it seems to me there's a couple of um, reasons. For it. So, one of the reasons behind the disparity that disparity is very likely to be that BAME people are more likely to be employed in frontline roles in the UK. And that's also true in the US. So that includes in the NHS as care workers, um, you know, stacking shelves, bus drivers. And some of the stats really bear that out. So in the NHS, around 40 percent of doctors uh, are from uh, BAME backgrounds. And we saw that in the early deaths. You know, the early deaths that we saw of NHS frontline workers were disproportionately from minority communities um, and the same is also true in adult social care so almost 70% of the adult social care workforce in of, London uh, is from BAME backgrounds so that's part of the reason um, but then one of the other so, key know, a uh, reasons I think
1: isolating um, driving context, the is a socio-economic uh, reality of course, um, these, so these problems are terrible in the and south, but then, if, then in the US. Uh, in the in exactly. last week or so, there's um, been the inequalities that already existed, I like, being of laid there by this virus and coming to the surface because um, of this I think virus, like three oh,
0: thousand. Now, I want to ask next about the lockdown, and we've we, we've touched on the lockdown already, um, and the lockdown is this idea that you. Um, as a state, stop uh, st- request for people and or um, coerce people to not leave their homes or wherever they're living, um, save for ex- essential reasons, and it's happening in different ver- in different forms all over the world. And the and the point of it is to avoid the spread of the disease by limiting social interactions between people, which is a spreader of the disease. Um, and just looking at the UK. How can human rights help us understand the, the lockdown, and um, what its limits should be, the police response and, and the difficult question of when it should be lifted? J- J- Jude or Aoife, do you have something that you want to add on, on the lockdown?
2: Given that this is a month past where we were the last time we did a podcast on COVID-19 and human rights, I think one of the things that has become ever clearer with the lockdown is that it it impacts on a far greater range of rights than we would have understood or expected at the time that it was put in place. We've already talked about um, mental health. And obviously, you know, there's the right to the highest attainable standard of mental health.
0: The the site or um, ability to centrally...
2: ...is the impact of the lockdown in terms of the breadth of rights it's impacting on. We, we're seeing very clearly that uh, lockdown, it isn't just about the right to freedom of movement or the right to freedom of assembly. It's very clear that the human rights impacts go way beyond that to encompass things like uh, the right of children to protection from violence and abuse. We're seeing an apparent spike in terms of child protection proceedings um, result. Well, certainly an increase in child protection proceedings as a result of concerns around um Abuse being perpetrated in the lockdown in the lockdown context, we're seeing a significant increase, apparently, in domestic violence figures. So certainly those are issues that might have been at the back of the minds or at the front of the minds of people working in the areas of, you know, the children's sector or the maybe the women's sector and the uh, gender based violence sectors. Prior to the lockdown, but certainly it's not something that I think others of us would have expected to take such a prominent role and perhaps to become as se- severe and pronounced as they have in the context of lockdown. So I think there's been an awful lot of learning about the multifaceted well, and wide ranging aspects. The other thing that we're seeing the is increased understanding of the impact of lockdown and in terms working in the various of sectors might have known access this already, to things but in like, like food, social care has long um, been a relegated social security no area receiving We're seeing a greater understanding of, of the, the multiple ways it's not just it's about, about people not we see that the in, that they instance, want it's very much about uh, the extent to which there has been you know relatively like little complaints right about the extent of um, outsourcing of social care to private care providers and um, we see it in you know there's been in you know in the last few years uh, justifiable and correct uh, f- furore and fury about the salaries and work conditions of people working for the NHS or in in the health sector the same hasn't been hasn't been so in the area of social care and i think one of the things you know talk we can talk about care homes and the fact that care homes weren't immediately on the government's radar i mean of course that speaks unquestionably to you know Questions of ageism, disabledism when it comes to issues of public policy, but it also talks, also speaks to a general lack of interest in social care provision. And that, and and to be honest, that isn't. We all know that that isn't something that is solely the issue of government. The lack of attention to social care is something that is much more pervasive uh, in the UK. It's not just down to the government not caring.
0: Um, my final question um, I wanted to ask about doing human rights during the coronavirus crisis and, and, and it's a slightly clumsy phrase doing human rights but i use it in that way because um it comes back to something um and that osario um, has said and she's a a bit of a guru on how we can communicate about human rights and she said we should talk less about human rights being objects that we have and more more about them as choices we make actions we take and tools to hold power to account and my question is, are we doing human rights during this crisis? And if so, how? And how, how might we do them better?
2: The straightforward and quick answer to that is yes, we are doing human rights in this crisis. I mean, one of the, one of the things that is really striking over the last few few weeks is the extent to which we are seeing human rights language being deployed, not just by the traditional human rights sector, but also by people, for instance, campaigning around uh, PPE, which we've mentioned already. Um, campaigning around, you know, healthcare provision. Campaigning around questions of government accountability in the context of pandemic. And cert, I mean, and, and that's just in the UK. But we're absolutely seeing human rights being taken out of the out of the human rights toolbox and being put into action in the context of this crisis. They're receiving. We're seeing a major increase in attention. We're seeing a major increase in action with regards to human rights. And we're seeing that in different ways. We're seeing it not just in the context of advocacy, we're also seeing it in the context of strategic litigation, and I think we're also seeing it in the context of not just the here and now, what do human rights have to offer us when it comes to try to, you know, affect regulations or shape policy or implementation of policy in the context of COVID-19, I think we're seeing a growing understanding on the part of actors who wouldn't necessarily have used human rights before about what human rights can offer in terms of addressing some of the structural problems that have predated and will postdate the COVID-19 situation. So no question we are very
1: definitely doing human rights during the coronavirus
2: crisis.
0: Jude
1: yeah, I think um, I, I agree with Aoife. I, I, I do think, perhaps not surprisingly, within the UK, there's been, um, although there has been discussion about economic so- and social rights and cultural rights, um, it perhaps hasn't been surprising given um, the nature of the Human Rights Act that focuses on civil and political rights. That there has been a particular focus on, on that on that set of human rights. Um, but I'm optimistic that. The crisis has uh, sh- shined a light on the the value of economic and social rights which in a way um, address a lot of these issues in a more some of the issues in a more sort of square in a more front uh, f- full-on way than a more direct way than um civil and political rights the issues form more fall more squarely within their parameters um, I, I think we're doing human rights as well in terms of um, you know expose in terms of um, scrutinizing government actions and inactions um, very very closely often through the lens through the lens of human rights um, I, I, I think that we also if we're going to be true um, to the um, Values of human rights, uh, the human rights community, um, and the broader um, community of civil society um, and, and government actors also need to look um, outwards. Need to look at what's happening to a greater extent and support action at, at a global level. Um, and this is uh, this is first and foremost uh, because um, you know. We're all human beings. Everyone th- throughout the world is a human being and has human rights. And the, the crisis poses risks to people throughout the world. And as a, a country with, um, that, that's been through the early, through the um, crisis at an earlier stage, um, as well as a country that does have resources um, and and technical expertise. Um, you know there's important areas of cooperation at the international level and with and with partners in other countries Um, and also because um, secondly of course that coronavirus can only really be tackled as a crisis through international cooperation um, and supporting different countries um, you know to 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 work their way through and overcome overcome the crisis whether that's um, through supporting actions on the ground, or supporting development and um, distribution of uh, medical interventions like um, treatments and vaccines and antibody testing. That it's, I agree very completely with what is talking
2: about in terms of general human rights advocacy and looking in particular to the global level and international cooperation, assistance and cooperation in tackling tackling the COVID nineteen situation. I think. One of the, I would like to flag however that one of the things that has been most exciting from the perspective I mean exciting and obviously a very depressing way in that it has to be done at all but exciting nonetheless from a human rights perspective both in the UK and elsewhere has been uh, the deployment or the doing of human rights through strategic litigation so and by strategic litigation I mean litigation that has brought to bring about you know uh, social or legal change. And I mean, here in the UK, we see litigation being brought in relation to the right to education, the rights of disabled people, prisoners' rights. There's a whole load. And we're seeing not just, when we see the argumentation that's being made, we're not just seeing reference to provisions of the European Convention in terms of the Human Rights Act, we're also seeing references to. You know, UN international uh, international human rights treaty standards, uh, the, for instance, the UN Convention, on the rights of the child. And that in itself suggests that there is a growing, that COVID-19 and the extreme situation in which we find ourselves has created an openness in the parts of litigators uh, with regards to deploying human rights in a new way or focusing on new human rights standards. In, in supporting their arguments. And also, I think it's interesting because it suggests that courts themselves there's an expectation that courts themselves might be more receptive to a wider range of human rights arguments than they would have been in the past. But I mean, that's very much from the UK perspective. I think something else that's really important to note is the extent how globally we're seeing strategic litigation playing a very important part when it comes to dealing with COVID-19 and uh, the negative human rights impacts of state responses. You know, I mean, we see, for instance, the Nepalese Supreme Court um, a few weeks ago issuing an interim report to the government to ensure the constitutional right of food to vulnerable workers, uh, worst hit by the ongoing lockdown. We see um, a DALA which is the legal center for arab minority rights in israel filing before the israeli supreme court uh, in an effort to secure coronavirus testing for 150,000 palestinians living in overcrowded refugee camps in east jerusalem and we see you know we see uh, litigation like that being brought by the human rights law network in india and allies which is actually focusing on the issue of access to justice brought about Um, brought about the Indian Supreme Court's flexibilisation of procedural requirements necessary to promote access to justice during the lockdown. And obviously, that's an important decision in India, but it's also a massively important decision when we think about the challenges that that people seeking to bring about access to justice are facing in other countries. I mean, this is a key example that can be piggybacked on or referred to by litigators here as well. We're also seeing um, the other thing that I think we should be very much aware of is that even even at a time when we're very aware of the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 and state responses to it on vulnerable groups, we're seeing litigation Pushing back really hard against efforts, get you know, against against the negative impacts of 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 state responses. So again, if we look at the states where we've had this long discussion, kind of post Trump about the hardening up of immigra- uh, immigration detention conditions, etc., we see the Center for Constitutional Rights bringing a case challenging an anti-immigrant rule in the U.S. which penalizes non-citizen recipients of a wide range of public benefits, very much on the basis that. In the, in the context of this, this exceptional context of the global health crisis, it's important that everyone, regardless of immigration status, has full access to healthcare and the public benefits for which they're eligible. So in a funny way, even though we are in an absolute human rights crisis, we're seeing real innovation, real pushing the envelope in human rights terms. And that is something that will stand, stand us in good stead when the crisis is over.
0: I think there's 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 a lot in that, um, and it's something that I've been reflects what I've been thinking as well about how, and if we put it another way around that, the, we're seeing the state um, in many ways in different ways than we have, I mean perhaps ever, but I'm I'm more tempted towards for a long time. Um, And, and I think back to going back to 1948 and and the universal declaration and, and, and all of the um, things that happened in those years, I, I I wonder if really what, well, I've been wondering if really what, what human rights are about at the most basic level before you go anywhere is, is preventing wide, preventing complete social breakdown, whether that's through war or through persecution or through genocide or whatever it looks like and it look can look like lots of different things and it can be triggered by lots of different things but i i just think that that when we look at the government response now you know the government the government has responded in a really interesting way it hasn't just said we're going to leave everybody to apart from providing public health we're going to leave everybody to to flounder it has to an extent said well we're actually going to back back up the economy we're going to be the 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 um employer of last resort as it were we're going to provide laptop chil- laptops for vulnerable children so they can access um education uh, online education to an extent and just a, a, involving a case that i'm involved in with keelan um they're going to yeah. You know, it's it's pretty extensive what's being provided and obviously we can we can criticize um and we should criticize where there's where there's gaps but i find it fascinating how we've gone from um, something like universal basic income being the, um, the the sort of mad musings of the, the far left wing um, from the perspective of the government to suddenly, well, we're going to be providing universal basic, basic income for a, a lot of people at, while, and, until this crisis resolves itself, which may be months or even years.
2: Sorry, I think that's a fascinating point. And I think one of the things that those of us who worked on uh, the financial and economic crises and human rights, one of the things that is consistently said is that the financial and economic crises and austerity, etc., we didn't see a shift in the global economic paradigm or attitude towards, you know, the the need for a small state or a preference for a small state. And it's interesting, I think, what you raise because I'm not sure that that will be the same here. I mean, it seems to me at the moment, especially when we see, for instance, shifts such as the UK government, which has been so long and adherent to the small state um, privatisation, et cetera, et cetera, um, erosion of social welfare model, et cetera, et cetera, When we see the UK taking the steps that it has, it seems hard to imagine that there won't be a shift in paradigm, that there won't be a greater openness following the COVID-19 situation to the state playing a more prominent role when it comes to satisfaction of, you know, economic and social rights for instance. So I mean maybe that maybe that is a positive to take from it. Now, it may be that we will post covid-19 see a savage rolling back and governments sitting back and saying no 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 this was an exceptional situation it called for exceptional short-term measures we're we're not looking we're not interested in a paradigm shift at all. But it's a lot harder to take something away once you've given it in the first place. And I do think that there is that there is hope that actually post-COVID-19, there will be scope for a new, more human rights-friendly paradigm, including uh, a more dominant role for the state they're in.
0: A, a bit like after the Second World War, maybe, and then the NHS, or is that a, a bad a, a bad uh, comparison?
1: I, I I mean, I think that's a really interesting um, comparison. Um, I, I think that's... Um, as as with the end of the Second World War, there's going to be clearly after this crisis there's going to be a big economic issue in terms of uh, employment and in terms of debt as well. Um, so it, it still remains to be seen um, how governments, our government and other governments um, deal with deal with this crisis. Is it going to be? It's a burden going to be to fall um, as it has done for for many years um, on um the poorer parts of society or is uh, th- through austerity, um for example, or is there going to be a a change towards more redistributive model, uh, which is something which I would like to see clearly. <laughs> um and, and I think it's also the job of the human rights community, of civil society, um, to continue to advocate um in the in the post-crisis era to ensure that um, the reorientation that we've had during the crisis uh, it, it remains something which uh, it, it, it is something which becomes entrenched. I mean,
2: one of the key things as well is debt restructuring and sustainability in that context. And the yeah. UN independent expert on uh, debt and human rights has made a series of statements making clear and, and going back to also, for instance, our developing economy uh, discussion, um, Global South related discussion earlier on, that uh it'll be very interesting. You know, I've given the example of the UK there as it being very exciting because lots happening. But in fact, then the question does arise: are we in fact going to see these changes throughout the global financial system, the global, you know, global global financial and economic uh architecture and infrastructure? So while I'm optimistic, uh, it may also be that I am I am being naive. And I suspect that Jude is very gently suggesting that I might be being naive, so I think that is possible, possibly if not probably a fair point. I think. Uh,
0: well, we're 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 um we're all looking for um some at least something positive, I guess, in in a very negative world that we're living in right now, and and maybe one of those one of those potential positives will be a, a slightly different understanding of the social contract and the. Um, and what the state, what role the state should and can play in people's lives for for for, for the better. Um, but equally, people may just be desperate to snap back to as best a, a version of the world before the COVID nineteen crisis that can possibly be achieved. And psychologically, it's just really difficult now to know um, wh- where we will be. But the one thing that we can hopefully predict is that we'll have another go at this podcast uh, potentially even round a table but if not then with some sort of more reliable technology <laughs> i'm sorry for um i'm sorry for the for the dropping in and out of the technology um any final thoughts well,
2: i think a, a point that has really struck me hard and it goes back to what we've been talking about doing human rights and some of the things that were said uh, in episodes one and two of this podcast is that when we look at the human rights community here in the UK and we look at the human rights framework, particularly the Human Rights Act, we are poorly served in terms of dealing with the most serious rights impacts of COVID-19 by having a human rights framework that primarily and almost exclusively focuses on civil and political rights. Okay, and that is not for a second to suggest that the Human Rights Act is not a fantastic tool for the protection of civil and political rights, um, or that, or that there should be any weakening of the protections in that instrument, or sorry, excuse me, in that legislation. However, when you have a situation where, if we think about the PPE shortages, and we think about the lack of ventilators, and we think about the inadequate stockpiling, or the inadequate number of health professionals available. These, these are issues that if they're being challenged or if they're being criticized in such a way as to try to hold government to account this can be done much more efficiently through a right to health lens through the lens of the right to you know safe and healthy working conditions and that it can through kind of indirect deployment of say the right to life and positive obligations related thereto Okay, so what I will say, what I hope in terms of, and I think it really has, this is a positive to emerge from the crisis, is an awareness that actually, while we have a strong human rights foundation here in the UK, if we are to deal with a situation like COVID-19 or indeed a range of different crises that may come across the board. It is crucial that we extend and build upon our existing human rights protections to a core greater recognition to economic and social rights. And positively, we're already seeing that in, for instance, in in various legislative efforts in Wales and in Scotland. But it's really something that um, is relatively new, in, I would say, the England-Westminster context. So a positive is that I think there's a greater understanding of the shortcomings in terms of our existing framework. But what I hope that translates into is a willingness to push forward and seek to advance that framework so that it is a real effect you know real really meaningful and effective when dealing with issues that are most the issues that are most important to people who are at greatest risk of um, COVID-19 and at greatest risk of the negative impacts of government responses to COVID-19.
1: Yeah, I mean I, it's something I've reflected on earlier, which is really the one of the issues which the um, COVID-19 outbreak illuminates for me is. Uh, Is this issue of health inequalities, um, which exists within this country and and globally um, within countries and between countries? um, You know, all these health inequalities which are grounded in different social determinants. And and this is an issue which has been given uh, more attention um, both within the UK and internationally in terms of um, being very important in terms of addressing um people's people's well-being and their and their health outcomes um so uh, i i very much hope that um this is something which will continue to be addressed both um during the covid-19 pandemic um and and beyond it because it's really a critical issue um to look at and and, and resolve in terms of supporting people's health um and and also going forwards um I, th- I think the outbreak really forces us um all to r- really reconsider um sorry just cut that bit going forwards i think that um it also exposes uh again the real importance um of of um states providing adequate funding for these core social institutions um like healthcare um, like social security um, institutions which have been um the starved of of uh, investment um for for the last decade uh, in particular um, and um going forwards, I think that really um, we need now urgent um, measures to address. That underinvestment in terms of responding to the pandemic, um, but we also need a longer-term uh, focus on rebuilding um, the, these institutions and providing them with the the funds, uh, resources, technical resources, um, and staff which uh, are needed for them to function
0: properly. Okay, thanks so much for for taking the time, guys. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much to my guests, Aoife Nolan, Judith Bueno de Mesquita, Keelan Gallagher QC, and Nicola Higgins. Thank you to Goldsmiths Law, who sponsor the podcast and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. You can find out more information about that through gold.act.uk forward slash law, as well as their three new lectureships, one of which is in Human Rights, which they're advertising at the moment. If you want to support this podcast, that would be hugely appreciated. You can go to betterhumanpodcast.com or patreon.com forward slash better human. Thanks very much. This has been the Better Human Podcast. I'm Adam Wagner. Goodbye.